0: Well, as we continue in our worship by focusing our minds on the Word of God, I would invite you to turn to Colossians, or rather John, John chapter 2, for this message entitled Cleaning God's Home. And no, this is not an extended advertisement for the cleaning ministry, but if you would like to talk to Julie Dossett about that, she would be delighted to hear from you. Our text for today is John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And in this text, we see Jesus aiming to restore worship among the people by cleansing the obstacles of worship out of the temple. Follow along as I read John 2, starting verse 13. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter for the full context, and then we'll narrow our focus down to verses 13 to 17. The Passover Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the oxen and sheep. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's go before our fathers as we contemplate this passage. Our fathers, we have this text open before us. We submit our minds and our hearts to what the spirit would teach us today open our minds illumine our hearts and show us Christ sanctify us by the truth your word is truth for those among us that need it young and old give sight to blind eyes hearing to deaf ears, and life to dead souls. We believe that only you, Holy Spirit, can save and sanctify. And we pray that you would do it for the glory of Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen. There is nothing God takes more seriously than worship. In John 4, Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The reason that God is so uh, takes worship so seriously is because There is nothing that God is more committed to than his glory. God is the most supreme, exalted, magnificent, powerful, righteous, sovereign being in existence. And yet at the same time as being exalted and lifted high, he is also loving and gracious and merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is, in his entire being, utterly above and beyond and unlike all other beings. In a word, he is glorious. He is full of glory and his glory permeates all of creation. As the most glorious being, it is right and necessary that he be jealous for his glory. And so he says in Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. And in Isaiah 8, or rather 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You know, jealousy is wrong when something. That you don't belong to you is desired in your heart, and so you're jealous. But it is right, and it is good, when something that belongs to you is taken from you. So when worship is given to anything or anyone other than God, God is jealous. And that is good. Because there is no one like him, it would be wrong for him to share or to give his glory to someone or something that can't carry the weight of his glory. So because God is utterly committed to his glory, there is nothing he is more committed to or rather takes more seriously than true worship. And we see examples of distorted worship and its consequences all throughout Scripture, starting with Cain in Genesis chapter 4, where Cain offered a sacrifice that the Lord did not accept. In Leviticus chapter 12, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered fire to the Lord that he had not prescribed, and therefore they received condemnation immediately by being burned by fire from God. In 1 Samuel 15, King Saul sacrificed animals that were supposed to be under the ban, and as a result of that false worship, God rejected him as king. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lied about the giving that they had brought to the congregation, and they perished immediately. Examples abound in Scripture of how people give false worship to God, and there are consequences when you do that. For some, the consequences come right away. Others, the consequences follow sometime later. We can ask, why? Why does false worship even happen? Well, it doesn't happen because God has somehow been unclear about what true worship is. To promote true worship, God has put himself on display. He has revealed himself in his word and he has revealed what constitutes true worship. So there is no mystery whom we are to worship, why we are to worship, and how we are to worship. One problem, perhaps, is that true worship is easy to fake. Not that God can be deceived, of course, but we can deceive ourselves and others into thinking that we're worshiping when we're really not. Sometimes in that self-deception, we lead others into worship, just as King Saul led the nation of Israel into the false worship through his offensive sacrifice. This frightening reality of false worship, which we can be self-deceived about, is described by Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he says this frightening statement. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So get this picture in your mind. There will be many, Jesus says, many who will come up to the gates of heaven with confidence and excitement only to find out that they're barred from entrance because Christ didn't know them. I cannot think of a more sobering thought that ought to sober us in examining ourselves. After all, right now, right here, from my vantage point, it looks like we're all worshiping in spirit and in truth. But among us, among those of us who are worshiping in spirit and truth, among those of us who are singing God's praises from the heart and, and being attentive and affirming the prayers that are prayed and receiving and embracing the Word of God, there are others who are living in sin. Some of that sin is secret. Some of that sin is out in the open. Some of you this week have practiced sexual immorality. Some of you this week have mistreated your wives or your children. Some of you this last week were enslaved to alcohol or to drugs. Some of you this week lived in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. This really shouldn't surprise us. The church of Jesus Christ has always included not just attenders, but members who are living actively in sin. It's been this way since the beginning of the church. Every New Testament letter to a church was written and included uh, direct and clear exhortations that they would stop sinning. And every New Testament letter written to a pastor, Timothy and Titus, included instructions for them to exhort their people to stop actively sinning. And every letter that Jesus Christ himself wrote to the churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, I should say with one exception, included admonitions to stop sinning in one way or another. So it should not surprise us that Hope Bible Church is made up of sinners. And some of them are actively, obstinately living in sin. After all, the very purpose of the church is for those who have confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing their need for him as a result of their sin, and yet have redeemed his forgiveness and his grace and redemption. We come together to teach and to rebuke and to correct and to train in righteousness with the word of God so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but rather we're growing in Christ likeness. All of that assumes that sin is a normal presence in our lives to one degree or another. And so while genuine believers battle with sin, to be sure, there's always tares among the wheat and goats among the sheep and false professors among the true. Those tares and goats and false professors are often unknown until either they can't tolerate the truth any longer and so they leave or their sin is found out and they refuse to repent and they're disciplined out of the church. But in the meantime, as long as they stay hidden, their their worship is false. Again, I say God is not at all deceived. He knows your heart. He knows whether or not you are worshiping genuinely or falsely. He delights in the praise of his people, especially perhaps those who are battling with sin and running to Christ for forgiveness and repentance. But he despises the praises of those who only give him lip service. Well, what we have in our text today is how seriously God takes false worship. Our text is simple and straightforward in its account of what happened, but its richness can really only be understood in the context of the the true worship that the Lord has instilled in ancient Israel and established for centuries and millennia. And because you and I are so far removed from the dynamics of temple worship, we have to do a good bit of background uh, information to understand why Jesus had such zeal for the Father's house. I mean, after all, you and I gather in this building, uh, in this room, and this is not a temple, right? Even though some call this a sanctuary, which simply means a sacred place, uh, we call it a worship center because it's the central place where we worship corporately. Uh, but the physical location, the material building itself, the specific room is really irrelevant to the practice of worship. We could just as easily file outside and worship out in the parking lot. Or when the new worship center is finished, we'll switch, switch rooms and God won't care a, a bit about that. Uh, we, we could worship in all kinds of places and it all times, and God is not concerned about the building itself. So the location in terms of the address of the church, the building itself, the room itself, don't make, our, don't make our worship more or less acceptable to God. We know that because the Bible teaches that God is concerned with the heart, right? And his concern for the heart is that it be devoted to Him and submitted to Him. God only cares about the external to so the degree that they conform to His revealed will, which for the New Testament church gives a great amount of freedom. But it has not always been this way. Turn a page or two over to Genesis, or rather, John chapter 4, where Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that God is seeking those who worship Him in spirit and truth just before he says that, he has this conversation with her starting in verse 20. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, you mostly referring to the Jews, not Jesus specifically, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, remember a title of It's not disrespectful, but distanced, as we saw last week. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Here, Jesus announces a seismic change in God's revealed will as to the location of worship. This new standard that Jesus announces here is what we've experienced for the last 2,000 years, namely that the location itself is irrelevant. It's the heart that matters. But what we read in John chapter 2 in our passage occurs before this, before this change occurs. So we need to get into that world where the location of worship actually matters. So to do that, I want to walk through the Old Testament as briefly as I can with a focus on God's standard for worship and his provision for a location of worship, because having this in mind will help us understand the zeal that Jesus had for the Father's house. And I'm just going to tell you right now, it will be a while before we get to our text, but we will get there, I promise. From the beginning of creation until the end of the 400 years of captivity in Egypt, there was no central place for worship. Uh, The people in that time were sojourners. They would travel from one place to the next. And so there was no homeland. There was no place to build a building. They weren't that kind of people. They dwelled in tents. So there was no central place to worship. They would build altars to the Lord wherever he would meet them. But then eventually they would move on somewhere else and build another altar. And, And so their worship was decentralized, if you will. There were few worshipers at that time. And so there was no need to build a central place of worship where all would come and meet with God. Then when the Lord redeemed Israel from Egypt, they stood at the foot of the Mount Sinai while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law of God. And in that law, among the laws given to Moses were precise and detailed instructions regarding the tabernacle. Tabernacle simply means a tent. Uh, And the tabernacle is more the technical term for a tent that was used for worship by the people of Israel. The tabernacle as a tent was portable because the Lord knew that over the next 40 years, they weren't going to be in the promised land. He knew in advance that they were going to disobey him and they needed a place to worship as they traveled around the wilderness for 40 years. So he provided a focal place for now this nation, this million and a half to two million people to worship God in a way that was pleasing to him. So the Lord was gracious to give them that center of worship. And when I say that the instructions for the tabernacle were detailed and precise, they were detailed and precise. They span Exodus chapter 25 through verse 30 just for the tabernacle itself. That's six chapters. And that's a common section where many of us have gotten stuck in our yearly Bible reading thinking, this is way too tedious. Why am I reading this? This isn't helpful to my soul. But the details and the instructions that God gave to them was a way of revealing how seriously he was concerned for true worship. He leaves nothing to the creativity of man. He describes the colors, the fabrics, the decorations, the shapes, the sizes of every part in every piece of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. And then to, to emphasize the, the central role of worship in the life of his people, the Lord instructed that the tabernacle itself would be uh, built up in the center of where they would uh, camp, and that all of the nations would be systematically placed around the tabernacle such that all 12 tribes had direct access to the tabernacle. In addition to the construction of the tabernacle, of course, the Lord gave more lengthy, and more detailed instructions of how sacrifices were to be made. For what reason? At what times? By whom? And with what animals? Again, no creativity allowed. No human ingenuity. No self-expression. No personal preferences. Israel was to worship God the way that God prescribed, or they would die. Again, Nadab and Abihu became case in points. Now, the reason God was so concerned about the details of the tabernacle and all that was involved with worship is because the tabernacle was not just a place for the people to come to offer up worship for their God. It wasn't simply a representative or symbolic building or tent. Rather, the tabernacle, listen, was designed to be God's home. Some of us, not uh some of you <laughs> have... A home somewhere else, a summer home, a winter home, vacation home. The tabernacle was God's home on earth. This just to say that though he's personally present at every place and at all times, he's with you wherever you are. At the same time, the tabernacle would be a place where he would uniquely and especially manifest his presence and dwell with his people. He would be among them as their God and they would be his people. And so wherever they went, he would be there through his presence in the tabernacle. And in fact, his tangible presence was so significant that it's even revealed, surprisingly, in the instructions on how they were to deal with their own human waste. After giving the instructions of how to deal with their bodily waste, Deuteronomy 23, 14 explains why that's so important. It says, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. God says, I'm living with you. I'm moving in. I don't want anything indecent among you. So God's concern for the tabernacle rose from the fact that this was not simply a place For people to worship, rather, it's the place where God himself would dwell on the earth. When the construction of the tabernacle was finished, God moved in. Exodus chapter 40 verses 34 to 38 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the temple, the people would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they would would not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God dwelled with his people in the tabernacle and they worshiped him. Tabernacle, of course, would be carefully disassembled whenever they moved and reassembled as they moved around the wilderness for the next 40 years. Then when they entered the promised land with Joshua, because they were no longer camping the way that they did and because they were engaged in constant military campaigns, they did not set up the the tabernacle until Uh, they completed their military campaigns. And so instead of having a place of worship at the tabernacle, rather they they took the Ark of the Covenant, that central piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies, and that became their reminder of God's presence among them. You remember that when the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant dipped their toes into the Jordan, that's what brought the separation of the waters, allowing the people to enter the Promised Land. As well, the priests with the Ark of the Covenant uh, led the parade around the city of Jericho before its destruction. And in that way, the Ark of the Covenant was their constant reminder that God is with us. And they worshiped him uh, in that way. But then they finished conquering the land and Joshua chapter 18 verse one says, then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. So they finished conquering the land They're done with all of their traveling and moving around as a nation. And so now they set up the temple or rather the tabernacle in one place so that the people can come uh, as was needed and prescribed to worship God. And it was there for about 300 years in Shiloh. Of course, that's through the period of the judges. So we know that there are many cycles of obedience and rebellion and restoration and obedience and rebellion and restoration. And so they worshiped uh, in, in different times in that Way, but they always went to Shiloh for 300 years. And then after those 300 years, there was a little bit of uh, moving around, starting with a stint with the Philistines who had captured the Ark of the Covenant in battle. They returned it then because of the plagues that it brought upon them. Uh, but then when they returned it, it was put somewhere else instead of Shiloh. Well, by the time that David became king, he decided it would be a good idea to have the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And so it was that when he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, they set up the tabernacle for what was probably the first time in many years. And that began the over thousand years where Jerusalem became the central place for all Jews to worship the one true God of Israel. We know that David wanted to build the Lord a temple, He didn't think it was fair to God that he had all these beautiful palaces and the Lord had this this old tent. But the Lord rejected his desire because he is a man of war, but he honored his desire at the same time by saying, no, your son is going to build the temple. And so the temple that Solomon built took place, of course, very soon after Solomon became king. And it was nothing like the tabernacle. It was exponentially larger and grander and more ornate, and it was built with the best materials and though the lord had given precise instructions on the tabernacle there are no such instructions for the temple and it may be that he inspired the architects and the workers to to do their work but whatever the case the scripture is clear that the temple was indeed built with the blessing of god and so even though it was different than the tabernacle it was still what god desired to take place well when that temple was finally completed The Lord moved in. 1 Kings 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 10 says, And when the priests came out of the holy place, when, when they finished setting everything up, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The tabernacle was God's home, and then he changed homes, and now his home on earth is the temple. At the dedication of the temple, by the way, Solomon sacrificed, get this, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. It's hard to comprehend the logistics and the sights and the sounds of sacrificing 142,000 animals in a span of days. But that's what he did to commemorate the glory and the worthiness of God for true worship. So from this moment on, the, the temple became the central place of worship for the people of God. In many ways, it was the pride of Israel because the nations would come and they would be in awe at the glory of the temple that Solomon had built. All Israel would come to Jerusalem to worship and sacrifice at least three times a year to uh, fulfill the, uh, the feasts that were prescribed in the Old Testament. Whereas many of them would come in many other times for their sin offerings and other Thanksgiving offerings and whatnot throughout the year. Tragically, this temple did not get faithfully used for very long before the people started to worship false gods. As Solomon started to marry foreign wives, he would build up uh, places of worship for their false idols uh, on a hill right across from the temple, right next to the Mount of Olives. Though there were many who were still faithful to the Lord, their numbers grew fewer and fewer as the years passed on. And then over the next 300 years, the the temple really started to fall into disrepair. Even though, again, there would still be cycles of renewed worship and then return to false worship and renewal. But no one was really taking care of the temple itself. But then the Lord used King Josiah to repair the temple. And in the process of repairing the temple, you know what they found? a copy of the scripture. The nation had so far departed from the Lord that a physical copy of the law of God had been lost and forgotten. But they found it, and out of excitement, they brought it to Josiah as though they had found this magnificent jewel, which of course is exactly what they found. And 2 Kings 22 says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he Tore his clothes, and he said, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found; for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written in us uh, in all that is written concerning us. He confessed the reality that, as a nation, they had departed from the Lord, and now it was time to go back to the Lord. So the Lord used King Josiah to uh, launch a great revival of true worship and they restored the temple sacrifices and they uh, began practicing or uh, rather celebrating the Passover. Unfortunately, as would happen, his reforms did not last very long and the people went after idols once again. Despite extraordinary patience and long suffering on the part of the Lord, He finally decided that he would no longer dwell with his people in the temple. The prophet Ezekiel, who had gone into exile into Assyria with the northern tribes, was given a vision by the Lord of the Lord moving out of the temple. He describes in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, the, the slow and methodical movement of the glory of God, departing out of the Holy of Holies, and then out to the threshold of the temple, and then out to the gate, and then up the Mount of Olives, and then up into heaven. The reason the Lord gave this vision to Ezekiel is because no one in Jerusalem, including those who were in the temple worshiping their false idols, noticed that God's glory left. Well, the time came when the Lord handed Judah over to her enemies and Jerusalem and its temple were utterly destroyed by the Babylons in, excuse me, Babylonians in 586 B.C. And for 70 years, the rubble of the temple sat as a reminder of what happens when you turn away from the living God. But as God promised to Daniel and Jeremiah, after 70 years, he provided for Ezra to return back to Judea with a number of the people for the specific purpose of rebuilding the temple. And then when the foundation was reestablished and completed, it says many rejoiced. But Ezra seven chapter 3 verse 12 says, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, Solomon's temple, They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. The reason they wept is because Solomon's temple was magnificent and grand and massive, but this temple that they were rebuilding was small. It could not compare to the glory of Solomon's temple. And so they wept, recognizing what they had lost. Nevertheless, they continued the work and it came to completion and this temple which they built is the uh, the foundation if you will of the temple that herod then expanded and renovated which as we read in our passage they said at the time of jesus had been worked on for 46 years but actually it didn't get completed until 64 a.d just six years before the romans utterly destroyed it again well remember how the lord had moved into the tabernacle And remember how the Lord had moved into the temple? That didn't happen with Ezra's temple. Though they were right and and, uh, really told by God to rebuild the temple and restore true worship, the glory of God did not return to reside in the temple with the people. Why? Well, in the words of Isaiah fifty. When the Lord gave Judah into the hands of the Babylonians to destroy the city and the temple, that was the Lord's certificate of divorce by which he sent the people away. Though he was not utterly finished with them and he still had promises of future restoration, their incessant spiritual adultery broke the relationship such that rebuilding the temple as good and right of an act as that was could not restore the relationship to God to what it was. So when Jesus arrives on the scene some 600 years later after that temple was built, there was no glory in the temple. But that's not to say that it wasn't the God-approved place of worship, because it was. Though His glorious presence was not in the temple, it was still God's house, which is why Jesus calls it, My Father's house. So God still viewed the temple as His house, and it was still the proper place to worship God. The the sanctity of the temple as the place of worship was so important to Jesus that not only did he cleanse it here at the beginning of his ministry, but he did it again uh, in that final week of his ministry. It's not recorded by John, but uh, the other three gospel writers recorded, and specifically Luke tells us in Luke 19.46 that when Jesus was driving out the merchant's On that occasion, he said, it is written, my house, and he's quoting the Old Testament, so this would be the the father speaking, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. My house shall be a house of prayer. Perhaps like me, you've often thought of the temple as a place of worship, but really specifically a place of sacrifice, that that's where the people went to make their sacrifices. But no one ever called God's house a house of sacrifice. Certainly not God. He called it a house of prayer. And that goes all the way back to Solomon's dedication of the temple. In 1 Kings 8, we read about the dedication of Solomon's temple, and in that dedication... Not only did they sacrifice those 142,000 animals, but Solomon offered an extended prayer of dedication, which I was hoping to read earlier in my preparation, but it's a very extended prayer, so I'll just highlight a portion of it. After beginning with praise, he says this to the Lord. Listen to the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place which you have said, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, when, and when you hear, forgive. And then he goes on from there to describe eight different scenarios under which the people would, throughout their history, cry out to God, either in the temple or facing the temple from wherever they were in the world. And with each of those eight scenarios, he asks the Lord, Lord, when you hear your people pray here in heaven and respond to the prayer by bringing forgiveness or restoration or whatever it is that is needed in that moment. So it would be a mistake to think that the temple and temple worship is exclusively defined by sacrifices. Rather, true worship at the temple was defined more by prayer than by sacrifice. The prophet Isaiah wrote about God's salvation of Gentiles, and he said this in Isaiah 56, verse 7, These, speaking of Gentiles, these I will bring in uh, to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's the passage that Jesus quotes in Luke 19. So sacrifices happened there, but it was called a house of prayer. And not just a house of prayer for and by Israelites, but a house of prayer for and by the nations. Gentile salvation is not what makes the New Testament new. The Lord had long since proclaimed that the nations would be blessed through Abraham. And when he established his home, the temple, he established it as a place where Jews and Gentiles could come to worship him. Okay, with that as background, are you ready to get into our text? (laughs) As you see in verse 13, it says the Passover was at hand. This means that Jerusalem was beginning to swell with Jews and Gentiles from around the world who were coming to celebrate this most important feast. Though the temple would be most busy on the Passover those from afar would naturally go to the temple more frequently because they rarely had the opportunity to do so, and they would pray and worship uh, God all throughout the week. The temple had different sections that were separated by demographics such that the outermost court was the court of the Gentiles. The next court was the court of the women, and and the court closest to the holy place was the court of the men. Look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Though it doesn't specify where in the temple this was, it's without a doubt that it was in the court of the Gentiles. That's really the only other place it would be, since that was the outer court where all people were allowed. And the the practice of selling oxen and sheep and changing money really in and of itself was not the problem the law of God recognized that once they entered into the land, many of them would live too far away to be able to bring their tithes of produce and their animals for sacrifice from wherever they were traveling, where they would travel for days or weeks. And so the law of God gave them provision to be able to handle that situation differently than those who were close by. And so it says in Deuteronomy 14, 24, if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, When the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses, referring to the temple, to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and then go to the place where the Lord your God chooses and spend the money there for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat it there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Remember that when they were to give sacrifices, most of the sacrifices were not something that you just passed on to the priest and walked away. No, there was a a ritual where you would participate and you would eat either part of the animal or part of the meal that you would provide uh, as part of your sacrifice. And so that's why they could sell their, their provisions where they lived, bring money, buy what they needed, and then do their ritual sacrifices and worship there before the Lord in Jerusalem. So those who lived far away, again, would not bring their tithes of produce and sacrificial animals. They would bring money. This obviously required that Jerusalem have a market for those people to buy what they needed. And this would be the majority of Jews who'd be coming from outside of Judea in order to uh, worship the Lord. So there needed to be a large market where there could be a lot of oxen and a lot of sheep and a lot of pigeons, which was animals to sacrifice when someone was poor. And then money changers also became necessary because as people, as the Jews were spread beyond the borders of Israel, they would bring with them the currency of their nation and the the priests and leaders would not accept foreign currency for purchasing temple sacrifices. So they'd have to have a money exchange so that they could make the right purchases with the right currency. That in and of itself was not a problem. That was all more or less legitimate. The problem was not that they were selling animals. The problem was not that they were exchanging currency. The problem was where they were doing these things. Historians tell us that the market for money changing and buying and selling of oxen originally actually was on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley from the temple. It wasn't far but it was a sufficient distance that all, of that all of what was involved in that market and all the traffic and noise it generated did not disrupt the worship that was taking place in the temple. But when that market was, for some reason, brought into the temple, that changed everything. You can imagine that with hundreds of thousands of Jews coming to Jerusalem for Passover, there would need to be tens of thousands of animals on hand. There would be a cacophony of noise, of the lowing of the oxen and the bleeding of the sheep and the cooing of the pigeons and the the tinkling of the money and the, the sounds of people probably yelling at each other above the noise with the transactions that they were having to make. And again, remember, where was this? This was in the court of the Gentiles, in the very place where believing Gentiles could come to pray to the Lord, to engage in worship, to focus their hearts and their minds, there would be untold distraction. I mean, just imagine if, if our church had a coffee shop, as many churches do, but instead of having it out in the lobby or, or down the hall, it was actually in the worship center. And while we were here trying to sing and pray and listen to God's word proclaimed, there's There's people making orders and there's coffee being brewed and frappuccino machines blending and the frothing of milk. And it would be impossible to focus and concentrate on what we're trying to do in worship. That was the situation Jesus was walking into. The temple was the Father's home, the place where His people would meet with Him and where He would meet with them. They would pour out their hearts to Him where they would receive the word of God and make their sacrifices. But it had become a madhouse market to make things worse. Above the chaos, there was also the extortion. The Religious leaders ensured that they would financially benefit from this market in the temple. So they allowed the sellers to charge exorbitant rates and the money changers to charge rates for uh, changing currency that were unreasonable. And so that's why Jesus said in Luke 19, you've made this into a house of robbers. So the entire enterprise disrupted the worship of the people and took advantage of those who wanted to worship rightly, but had no other option than to buy these animals. So out of zeal for the purity of true worship, and the sacredness of the Father's house, and being the Messiah who was to redeem his people to a right worship and right relationship with God, Jesus exercises his divine authority and clears everything out. Look at verses 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. And He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. With the animals being purchased, there would have been a lot of rope around. And so he made a makeshift whip and used it to clear out. The court. And while we might shrink back from this idea of Jesus expressing violent anger in a way that could possibly harm animals and people, make no mistake about it, these people deserve to die for their false worship of the true and living God. Jesus would have been just to call down fire from heaven and consume those who were worshiping falsely. But in mercy, in mercy, he manifested righteous anger and his actions brought a temporary end to their false worship. Now, a lot of people look to this passage and they justify their own expressions of anger. We should be careful not to do that. As the judge of all the earth, he has the right and responsibility to rain down judgment on sinners. You and I do not have that right. But his example does remind us that there is such a thing as righteous anger. And how that is to be expressed will depend on the situation. Some wonder here why Jesus drove out the money changers and the sellers of oxen and sheep, but rather he spoke to the pigeons, or not to the pigeons, to the sellers of pigeons. He could have done that. They would have obeyed him problem is they were in cages and they couldn't get themselves out. So he had to speak to the sellers of pigeons. And the reason is because they were in cages and he couldn't just, hey, shoo, move. No, they had to be carried out. So that's why he spoke to the sellers of pigeons in case you were curious about that. (laughs) That tells us though, by the way, that Jesus was not out of control. He understood the situation and he exhibited restraint and he told them to carry out their birds. We'll finally look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples, of course, who were with Jesus must have been stunned (laughs) at what they were seeing. By now, they'd probably been with Jesus some matter of weeks, if not months. And they'd always observed Jesus to be gentle (laughs) and remarkably calm with the massive amount of crowds that were around him as they were growing as he ministered uh, to the people in the area of Galilee. And so to see him act with such force and energy would have been shocking to them. But since they were just observers and not the recipients of his actions, they had the ability to to process what was going on. And the Spirit brought to their minds Psalm 69, verse 9. And Psalm 69, verse 9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me that second part sounds familiar it's because paul quotes that second part in romans chapter 15 verse 3 applied to jesus it means that when god was dishonored jesus felt the offense when god was rejected jesus felt the pain when when god's word was distorted he felt the insult and then when god's house was abused he felt the anger but the first part is what came to their minds it says zeal for your house Will consume me. It it ate him up. Zeal took over and controlled his response to the situation. Witnessing the, the desecration of God's house was more than he could bear. Knowing that there were people who were trying to worship God, trying to lift up their prayers, trying to offer sacrifices of praise and tithes and offerings, but the religious establishment stole the house of prayer to use it for their own personal gain. It was impossible for him not to act. Now, undoubtedly, he had seen this before as he was growing up. But now that his ministry was launched and he was being publicly declared as the Messiah, it was time to do something about it. And so he did. He was zealous for God's house. He was zealous for true worship. And so he acted swiftly and decisively to protect God's home. Well, we'll look at how the Jewish leaders responded to this next week but as we draw to a close today i want to ask you are you zealous for god's house Amen. are you zealous for true worship we are the church are we not and among the metaphors the new testament uses to describe the church who the people of god are we learn that we are members of god's household ephesians 2:20 we are god's building 1 Corinthians 3, 9. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 17, Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells in you? Anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We're no longer limited to worshiping God in a particular place. In a particular building. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman, we can worship God. We must worship God in spirit and in truth wherever we are. But the danger that freedom brings is that we can become much more lax in our worship and how we think about it. Like sell, like the sellers in the temple, we can think that we're actually worshiping God in, in whatever way we desire and that God cares very little about how we worship and how we live our lives. We think deceptively that we can live our own way and still worship God and be acceptable to him. And so when Jesus clears out the temple here, among other lessons that we'll continue to look at next week, he modeled for us the kind of zeal that we should have for true worship. We must not give sin rent in the courts of our lives now we all sin and we all have different battles with sin and so we must not let those battles with sin stop us from running to christ in repentance and worship but we cannot become complacent and tolerate sin in our life in the sermon on the mount jesus used graphic language to describe how we should be zealous for rooting out sin in our lives, he basically says, Does your eye cause you to sin? Tear it out. Does your hand cause you to sin? Cut it off. Hyperbi- hyperbolic language, as that might be, it conveys a seriousness with which we ought to remove sin from our lives and pursue faith filled worship of God. The good news of Jesus Christ is that no matter how much we have sinned, No matter how much we have allowed hypocrisy and false worship to characterize our lives, forgiveness is found in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We but need to confess it and turn from it and run to him who was so so zealous to clean God's home that he gave his life so that we could be washed by his blood. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge, each one of us, that we are not as zealous as Jesus was for true worship. In one way or another, to one degree or another, we pay little attention to the sin in our lives. There may be even some here who have been living so hypocritically, and they need to repent. Lord, would you... Convict their hearts. Make Jesus look grand and glorious as the Savior that He is in their lives and cause them to turn to Him. Lord, for each one of us, don't allow us, please, Lord, to be self-deceived. We know Your Word says that You discipline those You love. Lord, allow our sin to come to our minds, that which is hidden in us, or to recognize the the fullness of it, what we already know, so that we can repent of it, we can turn from it, and we can offer you true worship. Lord, do that work among us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.